0: Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. For Moses writes that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all of its commands. But faith's way of getting right with God says, don't say in your heart who will go up to heaven to bring Christ down to earth. And don't say who will go down to the place of the dead to bring Christ back to life again. In fact, it says, the message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart. And that message is the very message about faith that we preach. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on Him to save them unless they believe in Him? And how can they believe in Him if they have never heard about Him? And how can they hear about Him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. But not everyone welcomes the good news. For Isaiah the prophet said, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from hearing. That is, hearing the good news about Christ. But I ask, have the people of Israel actually heard the message? Yes, they have. The message has gone throughout the earth and the words to all the world. But I ask, did the people of Israel really understand? Yes, they did. For even in the time of Moses, God said, I will rouse your jealousy through people who are not even a nation. I will provoke your anger through the foolish Gentiles. And later Isaiah spoke boldly for God, saying, I was found by people who were not looking for me. I showed myself to those who were not asking for me. But regarding Israel, God said, All day long... I opened my arms to them, but they were disobedient and rebellious. So, we've been talking a lot about the mindset that we're supposed to have about God once we understand our salvation. Right? Romans 1-8 through talks about our salvation, it talks about our condition as human beings, and it frees us from having to think about being saved. But unfortunately, what can happen when that happens is that that freedom scares us. And so what we do, oftentimes, is resort to trying to enslave ourselves again because we are afraid of that freedom. Now the Jews... They were responsible for doing this. Now, of course, some of them used it to their advantage, where they took the fear of the people, which is really ironic, but they took the fear of the people in their freedom and used it against them. But I personally believe that most people, when they resort to that, are not trying to gain power, but they actually are afraid, because they don't really understand emotionally who they have partnered with. And who is it that we have partnered with? God in Christ, right? And so if they understand really who they have partnered with as God in Christ, then not only would they see themselves as free, but they would not be scared And so the way in which we understand that is first to change the way that we think about who God in Christ is. We're not supposed to necessarily view him as the master, because that is a slave way of thinking. That's the way that we used to think about these things, that they were a utilitarian thing, that in order for us to survive, we had placed this thing in front of us and we were enslaved to us enslaved to it. And now, in order for us to be free, we put this thing in front of us and we're enslaved to it. But God makes it clear that He does not want us to view Him as a master solely. Primarily, He wishes for us to view Him as what? Husband. So there is a sort of change of the mind that needs to take place. But we recognize, through the plight of the Jews, who are really a microcosm the way we as Christians can behave. They really are the, 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 the forerunners of humanity here. God likes to use them as examples for humanity. We recognize through the plight of the Jews that that is not an easy thing, that each of us can take away from God what he sets forth about himself and what it means for him to be husband what it means for him to be master, what it means for him to be father, and replace that with things that we are comfortable with. And so, strangely, in our freedom, we then find ourselves again enslaved. Because, strangely, we are entitled to that freedom when we don't view God as husband. So, Paul continues in Romans 10. And he's talking about, in Romans 10, this concept of salvation. And he makes some of the most important statements in all of Romans and in all of the Bible. He goes back in Romans 10, and he says, verse 6, But faith's way of getting right with God says, Don't say in your heart who will go up to heaven, and don't say who will go down to place of the dead. And he goes on, in verse 9, and he says, If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now this, believe it or not, is not meant to be alone a statement of faith, even though it is a statement of faith. He makes it as a theological statement, but its context, if you recall, is not simply as a statement. Its context is as a refutation of of the idea that was coming before, which was that when there is a way to be saved, we should send somebody up to the mountain to go get that way of being saved. Or we should send somebody down to the grave to go get that way of being saved. We should attain for ourselves salvation. And Paul is saying, no, no, all you have to do is believe and confess. So it's important to understand that this statement is coupled with a specific anti-statement about man's effort. So I want to look deeper into that statement. So we were in Romans chapter 10. We're going to take a look at Deuteronomy. So you can find it in the beginning of your Bible. Who remembers what Deuteronomy is about? Right. So Moses is about to die and he wants to make sure that he gets his final words in. So, we're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 29. Now, what we need to understand about Deuteronomy is that a lot has happened to the Jews since they left Egypt. See, the Jews they weren't the greatest. They grumbled. They were not humble. They forgot. They, if you recall, suppressed the knowledge of God which they had. God repeatedly provided for them again and again and again. And they repeatedly complained again and again and said things like, it would have been better if we had stayed in Egypt. So, those people suffered a terrible consequence, which was what? They were not allowed to enter the promised land, even though they were God's chosen people. See, they went up to the mountain, and they were waiting there for God's instructions. And they were disrespectful to God, disobedient to God, and they suppressed the knowledge that they had. And so they were put into a position where they wandered the wilderness for 40 years, trying to make it across to the promised land. And in this 40 years' time, they all died off, except for two Joshua and Caleb. So, as Joshua and Caleb are there, and they are now essentially the leaders of the people, Moses is an old man, and he's getting ready to go off to be with the Lord. Moses makes this group of statements. So, here we are, Deuteronomy chapter 29. <clears throat> These are the terms of the covenant the Lord God commanded Moses to make with the Israelites while they were in the land of Moab. In addition to the covenant, he has made with them in Mount Sinai. Moses summoned all the Israelites and said to them, You have seen with your own eyes everything the Lord did in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to his whole country, all the great tests of strength, the miraculous signs and the amazing wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you minds that understand nor eyes that see, nor ears that hear. For forty years I led you through the wilderness, yet your clothes and sandals did not wear out. You ate no bread and drank no wine or other alcoholic drink, but he provided for you so that you would know that he is the Lord your God. When he came here, King Sihon of Heshbon and King Og of Bashan came out to fight against us, but we defeated them. We took their land and gave it to the tribes of Reuben and Gad and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, ...as their grant of land. Therefore, obey the terms of this covenant so that you will prosper in everything you do. All of you, tribal leaders, elders, officers, and all the men of Israel are standing today in the presence of the Lord your God. Your little ones and your wives are with you, as well as the foreigners living among you who chop your wood and carry your water. You are standing here today to enter into the covenant of the Lord your God. The Lord is making this covenant, including the curses." By entering into the covenant today, he will establish you as his people and confirm that he is your God, just as he promised you and as he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you are not the only ones with whom I am making this covenant with its curses. I am making this covenant both with you who stand here today in the presence of the Lord our God and also with the future generations who are not standing here today. You remember how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we traveled through the lands of enemy nations as we left. You have seen their detestable practices and their idols, made of wood, stone, silver, and gold. I am making this covenant with you so that no one among you, no man, woman, clan, or tribe, will turn away from the Lord our God to worship these gods of other nations, and so that no root among you bears bitter and poisonous fruit. Those who hear the warnings of this curse should not congratulate themselves thinking, I am safe, even though I am following the desires of my own stubborn heart. This would lead to utter ruin. The Lord will never pardon such people. Instead, His anger and jealousy will burn against them. All the curses written in this book will come down on them, and the Lord will erase their names from under heaven. The Lord will separate them from all the tribes of Israel to pour out on them all the curses of the covenant recorded in this book of instruction. Then the generations to come, both your own descendants and the foreigners who come from distant lands, will see the devastation of the land and the diseases that the Lord inflicts on it, and they will exclaim, The whole land is devastated by sulfur and salt. It is a wasteland with nothing planted and nothing growing, not even a blade of grass. It is like the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Admah and Zeboim, which the Lord destroyed in His intense anger. And all the surrounding nations will ask, Why has the Lord done this to this land? Why was he so angry? And the answer will be, this happened because the people of the land abandoned the covenant of the Lord. Abandoned the covenant that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Instead, they turned away to serve and worship gods that they had not known before. Gods that were not from the Lord. That is why the Lord's anger has burned against this land, bringing down on it every curse recorded in this book. In great anger and fury, the Lord uprooted His people from their land and banished them to another land where they still live today. The Lord, our God, has secrets known to no one. We are not accountable for them, but we and our children are accountable forever for all that He has revealed to us so that we may obey all the terms of these instructions. In the future, when you experience all these blessings and curses I have listed for you, and when you are living among the nations to which the Lord your God has exiled you, take to heart all of these instructions. If at the time you and your children return to the Lord your God, and if you obey with all your heart and all your soul all the commands I have given you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. He will have mercy on you and gather you back from all the nations where he has scattered you, Even though you are banished to the ends of the earth, the Lord your God will gather you from there and bring you back again. The Lord your God will return you to the land that belonged to your ancestors and you will possess that land again. Then He will make you even more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will change your heart and the hearts of all your descendants so that you will love Him with all your heart and soul and so you may live. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate and persecute you. Then you will again obey the Lord and keep all His commandments that I am giving you today. The Lord your God will then make you successful in everything you do. He will give you many children and numerous livestock and He will cause your fields to produce abundant harvests. For the Lord will again delight in being good to you as He was to your ancestors. The Lord your God will delight in you if you obey His voice and keep the commands and decrees written in this book of instruction, and if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul, this command I am giving you today is not too difficult for you. And it is not beyond your reach. It is not kept in heaven, so distant that you must ask, who will go up to heaven and bring it down so that we can hear it and obey? It is not kept beyond the sea. So far away that you must ask, who will cross the sea to bring it to us so that we can hear it and obey? No, the message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart so that you can obey it. Now listen. Today I am giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. For I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to keep His commands, decrees, "...and regulations by walking in His ways. If you do this, you will live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you and the land you are about to enter and occupy. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen, and if you are drawn away to serve and worship other gods, then I warn you now that you will certainly be destroyed." You will not live a long, good life in the land you are crossing, the Jordan, to occupy. Today I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice that you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. You can make this choice by loving the Lord your God, obeying Him, and committing yourself firmly to Him. This is the key to your life. And if you love and obey the Lord, you will live long in the land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How many of you are familiar with that passage? Why are you not familiar with that passage? That is a powerful statement from a man who is about to die, who is in the position of leadership before his people. And as much as we like to harp on the Mosaic Covenant, meaning the covenant of Moses, you will see that the emphasis here is not on rules. It's not on following God to follow the rules, to get right with God. It's on loving God. Right? But loving God produces something, doesn't it? Loving God produces obedience. So then we naturally end up following God. You'll notice that he says repeatedly, today I am giving you a choice. Right? Over and over, today I am giving you a choice. Why does he say that? He says it because when the people were enslaved, they did not have a choice. Today I'm going to teach you something that maybe you didn't understand. You have a choice to make. The fact that you have been saved is not the end-all to end-alls. There is such a thing as a true believer... Believe it or not, salvation is you accepting what God has given to you. But if you have accepted what God has given to you, doesn't that also mean that you can reject what God has given to you? See, we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We know that. We know that the power of God's love is intangible. It has no limits. It's infinite in nature. Right? But we still have to accept it. Salvation is one step of that process. The scripture clearly points out, especially as we read in Romans 9, as we're reading in 10, and as we're reading in 11, that people will cut themselves off from God. And if you want me to be even more uh, harsh with that, that God will cut people from himself. You want some proof? Pastor Dad says no. Well, yes. Yes, he wants some proof. Okay. Okay. It is not enough to know God. It is not enough to know that God saves. There is something to be said for following through. Romans chapter 11, which we'll be discussing next week. Uh, Let's see here. Romans chapter 11, verses... 17 and 18. But some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel have been broken off. Broken off. Not fell off. Broken off. And you Gentiles who were branches from a wild olive tree have been grafted in. So now you have also received the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. But you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. You are just a branch not the root. Well, you may say, those branches were broken off to make room for me. Yes, but remember, those branches were broken off because they did not believe in Christ. And you were there because you do believe. So don't think highly of yourself, but fear what could happen. For if God did not spare the original branches, he won't spare you either. The power of salvation is unquestionable. But the issue is acceptance. It's not an issue of whether God is secure. It's an issue of acceptance of God's security. The Scripture is very clear that we must walk with God. And if we do not walk with God, then were we ever walking with God? We've talked about the concept of the visible and invisible church, for instance. And we know that just because somebody professed Christ at one point, but then they deny Christ later on in their life, does that because it does not produce fruit? Are you speaking from the place of entitlement? Well, entitlement is not faith either. It is the type of faith that gets broken off because it does not produce fruit. Are you afraid of infiniteness as believers that are part of the invisible church? See, the difference is that before we lived in this bubble, like the matrix, right? We lived in this sort of bubble of machination, a machine world, if you will, a material-only world, right? But when Christ came along, He freed our minds. He freed our spirits. And now we step out and we can see everything. And because we can see these things, we now realize that the gods that our ancestors worshipped, that were made of wood, that were made of gold, that were made of precious metals, we now realize that these are not gods, but in fact are lies. And so, because we realize that these things are lies, then we now have a choice to make. You see, before we didn't have a choice We were enslaved to these things, not knowing right from wrong, but only knowing good and evil. So we were enslaved. But when Christ freed us, He freed us to make a choice. To know what is right from evil. And to choose to follow Him. It is not enough for us to not continue in the process. The Scriptures say, as I said last week, that many will come before God and say, Lord, Lord, I have done these things in Your name. And He will say, get away from me, for I do not know You. So what is the key to that? The key to that is that our faith produces works. Or shall I say the key to that is that our love produces obedience. If we are not obedient to the laws of God, then do we actually love God? We are dynamic as individuals, right? We are capable of fooling ourselves, of suppressing the knowledge that we have. How many of you have been in a relationship where you know that you shouldn't have been in that relationship? but you suppressed the knowledge of that just hoping that it would work itself out. Everybody understands that or they've seen that with other people, right? That's not what we're called to be. We're not called to suppress the knowledge of the truth. Instead, we are called to let go of that and allow God's character to speak to us. Our freedom in Christ frees us to make the choice. Now before, we didn't have a choice to make. Like I said, it was a mystery to us. And that's exactly how it's stated. The universe was a mystery to us. We didn't know how it worked. But now, we look at Colossians, for instance. Colossians 126. Paul is talking about his work in regard to the body of Christ. He says, actually we'll start at 24, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles as well. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing in His glory. Romans 10 says that you do not need to send somebody up to heaven to learn about God and to attain salvation. It is right in front of you. Salvation is there for you. Being right with God means stepping out and following God. Judas Iscariot, the man who betrayed our Lord, was a disciple for the entire time that he was with Christ. Was he not? He was a disciple with Christ before Christ was crucified. Does that mean that he's part of the invisible church? No, it doesn't. Just because you worship God does not mean you follow God. And it is not simply enough on our part. It is enough on Christ's part. His blood is sufficient for our our salvation. It is not simply enough for us to have a faith That doesn't mean anything. Our faith must mean something. We have a choice to make. A choice between life and death. There's this episode of Angel. It's an episode called Epiphany. And in this episode of Angel, Angel has learned that all of his efforts to make things right haven't panned out. And so he makes this statement. He says, well, I guess it kind of worked out. If there's no great glorious end to all of this, if nothing we do matters, then all that matters is what we do. Because that's all there is what we do. Now, today, I fought for so long for redemption, for a reward, and finally just to beat the other guy, but I never got it. All I want to do is help. I want to help because I don't think people should suffer as they do, because if there's no bigger meaning, then the smallest act of kindness is the greatest thing in the world. Now, on the surface, that sounds okay. And there's certainly truth to it. There certainly is truth to the reasonableness of that statement except the world view is not reasonable. The truth of the statement is reasonable. The truth that because we don't have to worry about anything then the only thing that matters is what we do. So therefore everything we do matters. But that's only reasonable when we have a worldview that's free as Romans 1 through8 makes it. Now that we're saved, it's reasonable for us to resonate with Matthew 28, for instance. Matthew 28 verses 18 through 19. What does it say? You guys should know this. Matthew 28: 18 through19. Yes, specifically, I have given, or all authority in heaven has been given to me. Now go forth. And at the end of saying, go forth and make disciples, he says, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now it's reasonable for me to think that nothing I do is going to screw anything up. So therefore, I can act freely. I can go out with power and authority. But I need to be freed first. If I entrench myself in trying to make these things happen, and I forget the fact that all authority was given to Christ and that He is with me, and I just focus on go and make disciples, then what am I doing? I am turning my relationship with God into a machine. A disciple factory. Go and make disciples. Let's not forget the bookend of that statement. It does matter what we do. We look at Numbers chapter 13. In fact, let's look at Numbers chapter 13. I know that there is an idea that nothing good can be found in the book of Numbers because it is boring. But it is not actually true. Numbers chapter 13, verses 33 and on, sort of. Verse 30 and on. But Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Caleb, Joshua, and ten other men had been sent to go look at the land of Canaan to decide whether they should go into that land. But Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once and take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. But the other men who had explored the land with him disagreed. We can't go up against them. They're stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report about the land amongst the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers, and that's what they thought too. That's pretty funny to me. Um, (laughs) We'll skip down to 14.9-ish. Well, 14.5. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down on the ground before the whole community of Israel. Two of the men who had explored the land, Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh, tore their clothing. They said to all the people of Israel, The land we traveled through and explored is a wonderful land. And if the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us safely into that land and give it to us. It is a rich land flowing with milk and honey. Do not rebel against the Lord. And don't be afraid of the people of the land. They are only helpless prey to us. They have no protection, but the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. So as we read chapter 10, again, we find that a proposition is being put forth. That it is faith. Faith that produces works. That produces obedience. By which we are saved. Now is it simple enough to say that it is by faith we are saved? Yes. But if that faith does not produce works, then that is not the type of faith that scripture is talking about. That is an irrational leap. That is a wish that God will save us. That is not a hope that God will save us. So that is why I say now, faith that produces works will save us. But if we do not have that type of faith, it's not reasonable for us to go out saving people as angel puts it for instance it's not reasonable a person who understands will have the power and authority to move in the direction to take that land to go so far as to say they are only helpless prey against us let's look at first samuel Chapter 17, verses 32-ish. Let's see. David is serving lunch to his brothers who are at the field where they're standing before the Philistine giant and the armies of the Philistines. And this Philistine giant is lobbing insults at God. And David is there, and he's kind of flabbergasted. He's kind of like, what? And so he goes up and starts talking to Saul. This is what happens. David's a little boy, by the way. He's a little shepherd out in the field. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine impossibly, too, to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. He picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them into his shepherd's bag. Then armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistines. Goliath walked out toward David with his shield-bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. David replied to the Philistine, You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today, the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. Who do you know who talks like that? It's not a lot of people. There's not a lot of people who talk like that. Not a lot of believers who talk like that. And I'm not talking about, you know, in a sort of King James prose. I'm not talking about the violentness of of that encounter. I'm talking about the specificness of the hope and confidence. Do you remember what the distinguishing factor was for Jesus before the Pharisees? They were amazed at which he spoke, at the way in which he spoke, because it contained in it a power. We see this in David, and we see it in Joshua and Caleb. We see it in Moses. We see it in Abraham. And it is the power of believing that you are saved before God, and it is the type of. Are you the one who not only thinks bad about what will happen, but spreads a bad report amongst the people so that you can have your confirmation bias, so that you can justify the idea that you don't have to move? That type of faith is the type of faith that gets cut off. The scripture says that there is a remnant of people. A remnant of people who follow God. That's introduced in chapter 9. It's talked about extensively in chapter 11. But my brothers and sisters, let me point out something. If there is a remnant, then that means that there is a majority of people who claim to follow God, but do not. If there is a remnant then that means there's a majority of people who claim to follow God, but do not. And the scriptures are ripe with evidence from that. I'm going to leave you with this last scripture. First Peter, no, Second Peter. Chapter 3. Chapter 3. This is my second letter to you, dear friends. And in both of them, I have tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. Refresh. Because remember what we do? We suppress what we know. I want you to remember what the Holy Prophet said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires... They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. They deliberately forget, again, suppress, that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used that water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood, And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promises, some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live. Looking forward to the day of God... And hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to the new heaven and new earth, he has promised. A world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. And remember our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him. Speaking of these things in all of his letters, some of his comments are hard to understand. And those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different, just as they do with other parts of Scripture. And that will result in their destruction. You already know these things, dear friends. So be on guard. Then you will not be carried away by the errors of these wicked people and lose your own secure footing. Rather, you must grow in the grace of God and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Speaking of those false teachers. Sorry, guys. I'm going to read one more passage. Speaking of um, these ideas. When he was talking about the attitude that people have and how they suppress things, this is what he says. Peter. This is chapter 2. These people are as useless as dried up springs or as mist blown away by the wind. They are doomed to blackest darkness. Uh, 18. They brag about themselves with empty, foolish boasting. With an appeal to twisted sexual desires, they lure back into sin those who have barely escaped from a lifestyle of deception. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of sin and corruption. For you are a slave to whatever controls you. And when the people escape from the wickedness of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then get tangled up and enslaved by sin again, they are worse off than before. It would be better if they had never known the way to righteousness than to know it and then reject the command that they were given to live a holy life. They prove the truth of this proverb, that a dog returns to its vomit, And another says, a washed pig returns to the mud. They prove that a dog returns to its own vomit. It would have been better for them to never have known the truth than for them to know the truth and walk away from it. And so I say to you again, in my one of only a few in my career of preaching fire and brimstone sermons... We have a choice. Do we understand God for who he is, be discerning of who he is, and understand what freedom means in his trust of control? Or do we close our eyes to it, suppress the knowledge that we have, and risk being broken off from him? as the Jews, at least at this point in the scripture that we're reading, did. With what power do you speak? How do you understand? Are you David? You do recognize that Saul was patronizing David, right? That statement of go with God, that was a statement of, yeah, right. That might as well be me saying to somebody that I think is about to die, I'll pray for you. I'm sure that Saul really respected David. Enough that he he wanted to give him his own kingly outfit. But did he think that David was going to die? Yes, he thought David was going to die. But David spoke with power and authority because he was saved in his mind. He knew something that people didn't understand. Even to this day, he's seen as the man who knows something that people didn't understand, because he knew God with his heart. And he knew a certain reality that people didn't get, which is there's no way that there is a failure here. And because of that, he had a brazen fervor to walk up. I didn't read it, but The passage that precedes what I was reading has David going from person to person to person in that camp trying to figure out why nobody is slaying that giant. He keeps asking, why isn't anybody doing anything about this guy? Because he is hungry to defend his God. What are you? Are you afraid of facing the giant's? Would you rather go from person to person to person, creating a confirmation bias for yourself, that says, we should probably stay away from these giants, guys. I did some research, and uh, we're not going to be able to succeed. Is that what your faith means? Is that what it meant for Christ to die on the cross, to remove you from Egypt? Yeah, I'm mixing metaphors here, but do you get it? Christ died on the cross to save you. Is that what it means? That now you can be comfortable with God in his, in his lavish home and so you don't have to be out there dealing with the reality of the world because you get to sit in your father's house? It's not what it should mean. You should walk up to that giant with sword in hand and demand that he bow before our God. Take that and apply it in your own life in whatever way you need to. But... Your faith has got to be something that produces. Otherwise, it is a faith that gets cut off. Go discuss.